0: You are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund.
1: And I'm Simone Laws with Restore the Mississippi River Delta.
0: Simone, you know, we're about a week away. I need to go and get my turkey. I need to plan out my Thanksgiving menu. I just, I cannot Jacques, believe we're already there.
1: Jacques, I'm going with the ice cream turkey. I, I have <gasps> to. I have okay. to.
0: Okay, so you have to explain this because this conversation happened outside of the episode, but it is <laughs> it needs groundbreaking. Some yes. Um,
1: so um, I, I I have been sucked into the Instagram vortex. I have bought several things lately, and this targeted me because it knew I was um, vulnerable. And Baskin Robbins sells an ice cream cake that looks like a roasted turkey. The legs are sugar cones. And you can pick what icing you put in it. It's it's just unbelievable. I, Jacques, I just hope it's not a joke. It doesn't look like a joke because I went to order it on the website. Didn't didn't hit, um, you know, follow through all the way. But um, I, I'm fascinated by this. It, it involved a family text message that was like, how are you going to get it to the police where we have Thanksgiving? Um, police escorts, dry ice. <laughs> what do we need to do to make this happen?
0: I was going to say dry ice, but that is incredible. And just to be clear, it's not turkey flavor. You get to pick whatever ice cream flavor you want. It's probably
1: a little off putting at first, but um, our family actually doesn't really eat turkey. Um, And so I thought that's one of the reasons why I thought my kids would love it.
0: Well, there you go. And I have to say, I absolutely love Baskin Robbins ice cream cakes. Mm. I can't remember the last time I had one, but as a child, it was like the best Probably thing ever
1: six yeah, <laughs> years old.
0: exactly. that and the cookie cake from lakeside mall were like my favorite
1: <laughs> we had that we had that um six days ago um miss p's birthday i had to had to go cookie cake
0: had to it was so such a hard decision between the two but anyway as i said in our offline conversation <laughs> uh you will be mom of the year if you get the ice cream uh turkey Or my kids will think
1: it tastes like turkey and refuse to eat it. Either one or the other. But I'm just, I'm just fixated on it.
0: Well, I just request that you document this through photo, photo and video, so I can live vicariously through you. Because (laughs) we'll probably have just a boring like pumpkin pie or something um, at our house for Thanksgiving. Even though I'm a, I'm more pecan pie. Like I love Mm, pecan mm -hmm, mm
1: pies. Let me know if you need me to send you some pecans. Ooh, yeah, I
0: will definitely do that. Um, the story about the $30 pecan pie that I bought when I was in California is for another episode, <laughs> but I did realize that pecans well, are a lot Molly's more... Well, we know Molly's
1: fun question today. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Pecans are a lot more expensive outside of Louisiana and, and pies also. So anyway, well, let's get to the subject at hand. We had such a great episode last week focusing on the latest science of uh, Louisiana's coast with Liz Chamberlain and we wanted to keep the ball rolling but Simone I heard that you had some great fan feedback about last week's episode
1: I did I did but did you see I think we were Liz's first tweet um maybe ever she that she's like I'm 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 on Twitter it's gonna be my first tweet so it was about the show last week um but um yes yes um avid fan, Dr. Joe Ogeron. Um, I had a chance to see him on Friday and we chatted about the show. He had just listened. It was hot off the presses. And I joked with him that I think this is your way of making me take like non-credit science classes. (laughs) So uh, I noticed that you've done back-to-back shows on science. And so um, message received, Jacques, message received.
0: Well, I just say, you know, we are science based in our work and it's always great to get down to the substance of what's happening on the coast and how science is guiding that. So wonderful having um, Liz Chamberlain on last week. Glad we were able to compel her to join Twitter as a result (laughs) and and excited to see her thought leadership and engagement um, go forward (laughs) on Twitter. But we're having another scientist on the show Molly Keough, who is postdoctoral scholar at the University of Oregon Department of Earth Sciences, although she has a lot of experience and expertise in Louisiana's coast. So we're gonna talk about that. Um, She was also featured in one of my favorite documentaries about Louisiana's coast, Last Call for the Bayou. So a lot to get to, but first and foremost, welcome Molly, how are you doing
1: today?
2: Hi Jacques, hi Simone, Um, I'm well, great to be here. Molly, so tell us one, a little, Oh, I was yeah, going to okay. ask Molly
1: if she was on Twitter.
2: <laughs> Ooh, I'm not yet. So who knows? Maybe oh, it could be my yeah. first tweet also, but I won't promise anything.
1: <laughs> I love it. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, Jacques, i um, on with the real show. <laughs>
0: oh, no, no. All good. It all starts with Delta Dispatches. And if we can inspire you to, to tweet, that is that is great. But um, So tell us a little bit about yourself, Molly. I mean, you're currently at the University of Oregon in the Pacific Northwest. I hope you're staying dry through all this rain, but But recently you were um, at Tulane where you got a PhD. So give us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are.
2: Yeah. So as you said, um, I'm currently a postdoc at the University of Oregon. And in 2019, I finished my PhD at Tulane University, uh, working with Alex Kolker and Tor Tornquist. Um, Yeah, so I'm a coastal geologist. I study wetlands and how they respond to sea level rise and other both human and natural caused um, pressures of change. Um, Yeah, so I really like getting out and getting muddy in the wetlands.
1: So, Molly, they're probably happy you brought some New Orleans rain to where you are, right? Um, But it's it's the right amount where you are, right?
2: It's good to get some rain, and we have had some good atmospheric rivers lately. Nice, nice. So tell
1: us, um, you're here today to talk about a specific new study that you've worked on and and how you still are relating back to Louisiana's coast. So tell us more about. Um, I think it's titled "Organic Matter Accretion, Shallow Subsidence, and River Delta Sustainability." Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, so this is um, part of the work that I did as a as a graduate student, um, and it's out this week in the Journal of Geophysical Research: Earth Surface. So um, yeah, this paper focuses on. Um, wetland sediments and how they compact through time, in particular when they get loaded by additional sediment on top. Um, So we were interested in this because um, many modern river deltas are sediment starved. They don't get as much sediment as they used to because of things like dams upstream in the watershed and downstream things like levees that prevent flooding and prevent that sediment that is in the river from getting out into the wetlands. So that means that without this regular sediment input, um, the the wetlands are really dependent on organic material to keep up with sea level rise, and and that organic material is it's produced locally, so it's the you know the plants growing and dying in place and accumulating organic matter. So there's been this long debate um, about the importance of organic matter in wetlands and and how much that matters for keeping up with sea level rise. So to kind of get at this question, what what we wanted to know was um, how quickly organic matter compacts and and how much. So so we are looking at once that organic matter is there, how does it keep its thickness or or how much does it compact? so we have kind of two parts to the study, and uh, the first one is, is using sediment cores and, and direct observations to look at how much compaction has already occurred. And then in the second part, we wanted to know, well, how much more compaction is possible in the future if these wetlands continue to be loaded with additional sediment on top with new weight? Um, so we were looking at both compaction that's happened so far and projecting that into the future.
0: So Molly, what were some of the main findings um, of the research?
2: Yeah, so, well, we see that in a lot of coastal wetlands, wetlands um, the sediments are substantially compacted, and that's particularly true in areas with a lot of peat, um, a lot of organic material in them. So in in some areas of the Mississippi Delta, where there is a, um, extensive peat beds, we see that We see compaction up to about 50% of the thickness, um, and it's pretty widespread. So, And and we we find that that happens pretty quickly. It doesn't take a long time and a lot of loading. So it doesn't take a lot of weight on top to make this compaction happen. It's mostly happening within the top one to three meters of the sediment, um, and within the first 100 to 500 years after the sediment is deposited. And then compaction will continue after that, but but the bulk of it has already happened at that point. Um, so yeah. So Molly, I
1: was I was actually going to jump ahead because I'm always interested in and in how y'all do this work and how you conduct the research. So can you describe for our listeners a little bit more about the process?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, coastal Louisiana. Has a wealth of data. It's one of the reasons it's wonderful to work there. It's such a well-studied delta. Um, and as much as I love field work and collecting my own sediment cores, um, it's really great to be able to tap into this resource of existing data more than I could do in in one graduate uh, degree or or a lifetime. Um, so we looked at more than three hundred sediment cores that had already been collected across the coast, and many of those are part of the the Coastwide Reference Monitoring Net system, um, CRIMS. Um, So that's a great resource. And so a lot of these sediment cores, or they all have um, subsamples within them, right? So we have 300 sediment cores, but in total, we had more than 3,000 sampling intervals. Um, So with this resource, we we divided all of these samples into two groups. Um, And one was a, a kind of a reference group of samples that were at the surface of the wetland when they were collected. And we we assumed that these were uncompacted. They hadn't been loaded by any additional sediment. They're in the top four centimeters of the wetland. Um, so that's what uncompacted sediments look like. And then everything else below four centimeters we, we determined was compacted to some degree. So with these two groups, we were able to look at these compacted samples, which are buried at some depth, and compare them to surface samples that look similar in terms of organic content and density, that kind of thing, or, or organic content, and um, and then look at how the density had changed. So we were able to use these, this reference set of uncompacted surface samples to get an idea of what had changed with the, the samples at depth. So, basically, we were going back in time and uncompacting these whole sequences of sediments
1: That is so it's first of all, it's so neat that you were able to use Crims, right? I think that's um one of the things that we could brag about more, frankly, right? is this um really robust monitoring system we have coastwide and where the stations are and the data that collects this really cool system we have in place. And I think it's so interesting that you're building on top of that. You know, you used work that was already, you know, data that was already collected and and reanalyzed that. I'm assuming because Crims is coastwide, you see changes from from, from one place to the other, right? I mean, one area is more impacted versus the other, those kinds of things. Anything that stands out as an observation or as part of this work about particular regions?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um Right. The delta is not one single thing. It's very diverse across the coast. And and that is really special about the, the CRIMS network is that um, it encompasses all of that variability. So yeah, what we see is, is in areas where there's a lot more peat or a lot more organic material. So these are a lot of basins that are more sheltered from, from active deposition, not a lot of new sediment getting in there. Um, they are really, um, compaction prone. So a lot more compaction happening there. In areas where there have been, um, so closer to the mouth of the river or, or active deposition, where there's a lot more sand and silt built up, these don't compact quite as much because that's, um, a sturdier substrate. It, it does not, it's, it doesn't have as much pore space. It doesn't have as much ability to compact.
0: So, Molly, I want to dig in a little bit and do a bit of a science 101 for the lay people out there like Simone and myself. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of terms that are thrown around. And I did, you know, review your paper, and you know, it is fascinating. But I think it's also, you know, whenever we're talking about science, an opportunity to kind of break down some of the terms that we use to kind of help people understand. So in Louisiana, there's we talk about subsidence and then we talk about relative sea level rise. So, can you help us understand what relative sea level rise is as it relates to the Mississippi River Delta?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, the sea level rise part of relative sea level rise is, of course, the water level going up. And so, that's as a result of things like glaciers melting and, and other processes that make the water level go up. At the same time, the land level can change also. And in the Mississippi Delta, the land level is going down. So you combine that, the the water level going up, the land level going down, and that is relative sea level rise. So yeah, it's kind of a double whammy uh, on our coast with with the water going up and the land going down. Um, But yes, that, that combination is the relative sea level rise.
0: Yeah, a very clear explanation and also a reminder of why we need to do as much as possible to put that sediment and kind of material out to kind of sustain against both factors. Um, next, next term, terminology organic versus inorganic matter. You kind of explained this a little bit, but can you like help us understand what that, what those, when you talk about organic soils versus inorganic soils, like what, what do those mean?
2: Yeah, another great question. Um, so organic material is, the the remains of plants so anything that you know was was a plant in the wetland and it decayed and and um you know stuck around on the marsh surface and eventually it gets buried by more plant material or more sediment that comes in on a river flood um and then is incorporated into the soil so that's the organic material plant based inorganic material also sometimes called mineral or clastic material all kinds of names um, that's all stuff like sand and silt. So this is rock that's broken down into little pieces. And usually it comes from upstream, uh, comes from the river rather than there's no source in place in a wetland. It's it's deposited from things like floods when the river overflows its banks and, and is able to deliver that. Um, it's usually denser, heavier than organic plant-based material. And then it's deposited into the wetland. And wetlands are almost always made up of both types of sediment, a combination of this this mineral, sediment, inorganic, and then the organic component.
0: So when we talk about sediment diversions in in terms of what's likely going to be deposited in the wetlands, that's more of the inorganic matter, correct?
2: Yes. So again, um, it would probably be a combination of both, especially because in a diversion you will have in a diversion receiving basin you'll have plants and those plants will be growing and and dying and decaying um, so it'll be mixing with with the sediment that's the or inorganic sediment that is delivered through the diversion itself
0: but okay, yeah the sediments
2: and then the sediments oh, go ahead. deposited sorry the sediments deposited from the diversion um are likely to be more inorganic
0: Okay. God, this is great. Science 101. So this next term is one that we throw around a lot in Louisiana. I don't know if it's actually a science term or more of a traditional ecological knowledge term that's used part of the culture, but it certainly was, um, you know, top of mind after Ida and that is flotant marsh. So or oh, yeah. do you have any experience or thoughts on flotant marsh? And is that like an actual scientific term or how do you define that?
2: Yeah. So that is a type of marsh. Um, and it's a it's a really interesting type um because it on float- it floats. So this is when when the water level rises, the marsh and the plants and the root mass actually disconnect from the bottom of the, you know, whatever water body, the bayou. It disconnects and floats. And these plants are adapted to this kind of um ecology and, and living this way. And they're able to um, go up and down with the water level. And if the water level drops, maybe that floating marsh hits the bottom again and isn't floating for a while. Um, but but yeah, it's a it's a pretty unique um, type of wetland.
0: Yeah, that's a helpful explainer, because certainly, and you may have seen this, but in the aftermath of Ida, there was a lot of loss of flotant marsh, or at least dislocation, right? Um, displacement of that marsh in in different areas. Um, and so you know we were wondering with like uh, Dr. Alicia Renfro and others, you know, trying to understand like, well, why is that, and how does that compare to other areas? And um, you know, actually going out to some areas on the east bank of Plaquemines Parish where there there has been regular input of sediments, um, and kind of fresh water. Some of the health the marshes there were. A little bit healthier and kind of withstood the storm surge better. And and one of the things that kind of clicked for me that um, Dr. Renfro explained was a lot of times when you think about flotant marsh and, and loss of wetlands during storms, it's not so much always an issue of salinity, you know, freshwater versus saltwater, but sediment input, like which marshes have regular sediment input versus those that don't and may have weaker roots. Um, so anyway, Thank you for that. I wanted to get your explanation. And I like doing a little Science 101 on these episodes, so we should work that into future episodes. But Simone, I'll hand it over to you. (laughs) <laughs>
1: Jacques, I, I hear you. I hear you. I I know. I have to be better about it. Um, I will say something I think that Alicia would say, and I don't know if she wants me to tell everybody this, but she's like, it's floating because there's no sediment to attach itself to. <laughs> um, so I, I do appreciate all the explanations of um, all the science 101 that you're trying to push on me. Trust me, I get you, um, Jacques. But Molly, I want to switch gears Mm -hmm. just a little bit. I want to talk about you being a star. Um, So you were featured in the incredible film's Last Call for the Bayou about your scientific research along with Dr. Alex Golker. So what was that like? Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, boy, Encompass Films did such a beautiful job with that film and bringing those stories to life. I mean, I learned a ton watching the other stories and uh, seeing those diverse perspectives about the bayou. And it was really wonderful. And I'm honored that they wanted to tell our story. And Thankfully, they made us sound really composed because it's terrifying to be on camera, put on spot in on camera. Yeah,
1: it's something else to have them all in your face. and OK, and sound intelligent and all these things that you normally would be without something um, in your face. But um, the filmmakers followed you and Alex around as you monitor Davis Pond, a place that we've talked about on the show and I've been to so, so many times. So tell us about your work and your research out at Davis Pond.
2: Yeah, um, Davis Pond is a neat place to work. Um, and it was wonderful that the filmmakers came with us and really uh, got to know the area and really got to know the ins and outs and, and what we were working on. So that was, that was really special. Um, but Davis Pond is this neat system because it's, it's really constrained, right? It has this one inflow channel and it has maybe eight distinct outflow channels and these guide levees on either side. So it's this really bounded system, really controlled in terms of the edges, but then on the inside, the interior wetland is a left alone to do its thing, to, to evolve however it wants to. So it makes this this really great living laboratory. And um, just you know, over the course of a few years, while I was working there really regularly, you just see such rapid change um, with the sediment accretion and willows growing, you know, gangbusters. Um, So that was wonderful, just to be there. But in terms of our research, um, we wanted to know, so the the flow of Davis Pond, the water flow is regulated, of course. um, And we wanted to know how the amount of water that that goes through Davis Pond, um, how that impacts the amount of sediment that is retained within the ponding area. So of course, Davis Pond was designed as a freshwater diversion to regulate salinity in the basin rather than a sediment diversion, which maybe would be intended to uh, build land as as the primary purpose. Um, but still, Davis Pond is building land. Uh, so so and in terms of in terms of land building, we we think that you know to, retain the most sediment in the basin, that's what gets you the most land building. And that's what some of these diversions, mid-barriotaria and others, that will be the the main focus of those um, diversions that'll be coming online in the next several years.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question, Molly, which is, um, how does research like the work you and Alex and so many other scientists do at places like Davis Pond, Carnarvon, Wax Lake Delta. I, I went out to Cubitts Gap with Alex, which was one of my favorite trips ever. Um, how does that research inform the projects planned as part of the Coastal Master Plan, like the sediment diversions?
2: Yeah, so there's really no substitute for seeing these processes in action. And you know, the the new diversions will be different. They're in different locations. they will be a different size, different engineering, um, but but. You know Davis Pond and Carnarvon, these are these are great examples of of what we can expect and what we can learn from. You know what what will we change? What's working? What's maybe not working as well as we wanted? Um, yeah, and so one of the takeaways from our work in Davis Pond was uh, I think there's often a conversation when we're talking about restoration and, and diversions and sediment land building. There's often a a, a thought that more water is better. The more water we can divert, the more sediment we'll get out there. The better that is for land building. And what we found is that actually more is not always better. Up to a point, um, we, we found that a moderate amount of water discharge is best because you get a lot of sediment delivered to the receiving basin. But then you don't want to wash that. You don't want to have so much water coming in that you just blow all that sediment right through, you know, and out to the Gulf. So actually kind of reining that in and and diverting a moderate amount of water is, retains the most sediment in the system. And that is, um, would be optimal for land building. So hopefully we can apply those kind of um, ideas to these future diversions as we are, you know, planning them to be the most effective at building land.
1: So Molly, I know you saw this, um, you know, we, we go out there so much. Um, there were times when we would go out with, um, CPRA, we'd go out with Aaron or Theron. That's funny. I never thought about how that rhymes, but Aaron or Theron, and, um, they would have to take the boat out, um, just to see if the path had changed that we could take the boat.
2: Yeah, it changes so rapidly and, um, that, you know, things are filling in, things are changing, um, it's hopeful. I think, you know, if we're thinking about land building Davis pond and some of these other little diversions are, are little green spots on that, that red map. And I think we can really learn from that and, and grow those green spots across the map. Yeah. We, we always had
1: to tell the story that, um, you know, it, how much it changed from year to year, sometimes, you know, within a whole season. Um, but, but that, that's not even what this structure was intended to do. And so as we meet folks at the physical structure itself, we tell them the differences. We explain to them, okay, this pulls from the top. We want to pull from the bottom. So um, Davis Pond is, will always have a special place in my heart in terms of um, helping me better understand um, the possibilities and the opportunities of what we could do. And so it's interesting to hear it from your science perspective as well. So what are you studying now? What are you What are you focused on from a research standpoint?
2: Yeah, so um, now I'm, you know, as you said, in the Pacific Northwest, and um, I'm taking the kinds of things that I learned in the Mississippi Delta and applying them to estuaries on the Pacific Coast. So these are really different systems in terms of scale, in terms of um, geology, you know, setting on the coast, uh, but there's a lot of key similarities and you know, both of these areas, the Mississippi Delta and these Pacific Coast estuaries are really economically important, culturally important, ecolo- ecologically important to the to the local area and beyond. Um, so we're, I'm looking at a lot of similar questions here in the Pacific Northwest, things like sea level rise and uh, land use change and how that affects these wetlands and how sustainable these wetlands are going to be moving forward.
1: So this is one of my favorite questions to ask Molly. Um, When you were little, Molly, did you always want to be an earth scientist? Tell us about your path um, to your career profession.
2: Yeah. um, As a kid, as a little kid, I loved collecting rocks. I was always collecting rocks until my Pockets overflowed until I would want somebody else to carry my rocks for me because I had too <laughs> many and I didn't want to put any down. They were all precious. Um, I remember as a little kid, I had my in the summers. I had a friend and and we would run a rock store, except that we didn't sell any rocks because. I, we wouldn't have wanted to part with any of them. They were all so special. <laughs> um, so, so
1: a rock um, store where nothing's
2: for sale. And, yes. So museum. Absolutely uh-huh. not. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't know that I wanted to be a geologist, but I think nobody else was surprised around me <laughs> when that's the path that I took.
1: So you obviously went undergrad and you felt like this kind of specialty, you know, you have to go further.
2: Uh, as a geologist
1: have to go further? Yeah. Yeah. Like to get, you know, graduate school, all those kinds of things.
2: Um, yes and no, I wanted to go farther. I've, I've always liked school, but there's a lot of options in terms of career paths with geology and earth science. And, um, no, uh, I think you don't have to go further. Um, I think there's a lot of options. There's a lot of great options in terms of, um, environmental consulting and industry and And those kind of jobs that um, don't necessarily require years and years of graduate school. Um, But if you do like graduate school, there's also a lot of jobs with academia and agencies. And um, yeah, just so many options with, with geology and earth sciences. So Molly, what advice would you give
1: to students looking to pursue a career in earth sciences?
2: I think that... It's it's wonderful for anyone learning at any stage to get out in the field and see things with your own eyes or the lab, get into the lab any either way, get your hands into what you're working on and I always learn so much more whenever I'm working on a new project when I when I get out and see the field site for myself or or see the samples and and work with them myself. Um, and also finding somebody who is a mentor who is, passionate about what they do. Excitement is always infectious and it's always great to work with somebody who loves what they do. Yeah. Great advice. Thank you.
1: Yeah.
0: Get your hands dirty. And and I I know Simone and I like to get out and get in the field. So who knows, maybe we'll have a late blossoming career in science. Simone, maybe there's hope for us. We can (laughs) apply to the same grad program or something.
1: Yes, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Keep dreaming. All right. <laughs> there, well, there are people like Molly. You are so much better at it. Why would I mess with that?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. We just we just like to help elevate the work that the yes. scientists do, and I think that's a good place to be um, because yep. you all are brilliant, and Louisiana is very lucky to have. Such totally dedicated agree. people um working on its coast and kind of advancing the science and knowledge on its coast. So thank and, you, Molly, and to all your
1: and colleagues. Full for that. credit to Molly and to people like Liz and and the folks that we've had on the show that have to communicate the science. It's it's one thing to do it, but it's also um something else to translate it to to folks so they understand how your work impacts our everyday lives. And so um that's really important. And kudos to all the scientists that I know or working extra hard on that science communication piece as well.
2: Well, thank you to you all and your good questions and helping us do that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great, well, Molly, if you've listened to Delta Dispatches in the past um, and we've alluded to it earlier, so you probably know what we're gonna ask, but it is time for the fun question. And as the day of gratitude is nearly upon us, I can't think of a better fun question than what is your favorite Thanksgiving dessert?
2: Ooh, ooh, what a important question. Blueberry pie, absolutely.
0: <gasps> well, I know someone who can hook you up with some blueberries, yes, so you've Molly. come to the right place. Oh, yes. well, My mom
1: and dad have a blueberry bog, orchard, I don't know, something that's kind of out of control. And so, yeah, I got you on the blueberries for
2: sure. Oh, fantastic. Well, good to know.
1: Yes, yes. Um, Jacques, I saw an... Um, Uh, Lots of advertisements for Little Debbie Christmas Trees. So I'm assuming they don't have a um, Thanksgiving or a thankful dessert.
0: I feel like, like the, they have to have little turkeys or something. Yeah, like a so little I
1: fall, autumn, something. Yeah. Mm. Is
0: that your favorite Thanksgiving dessert, Simone?
1: No, little Debbie? No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, my mom um, my mom makes really great pralines and fudge, but she really mm. only does it a couple times of year. And um, Thanksgiving is the kickoff to that season. And so it's it's like Girl Scout cookies and king cake, right? Like you can only have it certain times of of the year. Otherwise, you'd be like, Obese and things like that. So, so Thanksgiving's the kickoff to that, and so it's so funny because um, we we will hide pralines (laughs) before Thanksgiving lunch even starts. Like we go into the um, container and people start squirreling them away. It's it's really kind of bad. And so that's probably the dessert I'm most excited for. Um, how about you? $30 pie? What's up?
0: (laughs) I will not $30 pies, but I love uh, pecan pies. Um, you know, bourbon pecan pie, chocolate pecan pies with a little scoop of vanilla ice cream. I think that is the perfect way to end a Thanksgiving meal. But I will say my grandmother made the best fudge in the world. And I agree with you. It was around this time of year and going into Christmas that it would kick off. And, and you'd know, like when she was stirring kind of that sugar or whatever, mm. you know, liquid for the fudge or when she was making the roux, it's like, do not go near her. You know, there's yeah, like, yeah, don't some bother really right, hot right. liquids going on yeah. there. And she's, she's very focused. So, I also, yeah, I would say my grandmother's fudge is a close, maybe not a close second, maybe it's number one, but it's just. Did a you
1: get to? Um, did you get to lick the spoon or the pot?
0: Um, well, it was always really hot. Um, well, I but mean, I th- you
1: know what I mean.
0: <laughs> I'd say yeah, generally, like when they would make cakes and stuff, I would get to lick. Obviously, like the pot and the spoon. Yeah, that's that, that was stuff. my mom's so,
1: thing, right? Yeah. Like who got the spoon and who got the pot. So oh yeah, that's special.
0: Well, well, thank you again, Molly, for being on. Um, it was so great to speak with you, and and happy to have you on as your research advances. And if you have new studies or papers that you'd like to share with our listeners, so thanks again, and best of luck um, to you in the Pacific Northwest as you pursue um, your your next phase of your studies.
2: Yeah, well, thank you both so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Molly. Jacques, I'm going to hit up the coastal
1: stat of the week, and I'll let you go with the coastal voice from a, a friend and colleague. How's that sound? Sounds good. So, from Molly's paper, she says, to test our hypothesis, we synthesized data from five sources consisting of 330 sediment cores previously collected in coastal Louisiana. Um, As Molly mentioned, um, those came from the Coastwide Reference Monitoring System, which was designed to monitor the effectiveness of restoration actions at different scales from individual projects along the entire coastal landscape. So the design of that system includes a suite of sites um, that range um, that encompasses a range of ecological conditions and swamp habitats, fresh, intermediate, brackish, salt marshes. There's over 390 sites that are monitored using standardized data collection techniques and fixed sampling schedules. They're located within or outside of Quipa restoration projects. And the reference network approach allows for comparisons to changing conditions within and outside the restoration and protection projects. So a wonderful resource that Louisiana has invested in um, that folks like Molly and and others are building their work off of.
0: Yeah. So glad that you highlighted CRIMS. It is one of the I think um, most extensive coastal monitoring systems in the world, as I've heard described, and so just so important to have access to that data and monitoring as projects are built. And, and as Molly mentioned, Louisiana is a great place to do research and science, so um, a lot of a lot of resources available to do that. So I will jump in with the coastal voice of the week. Um, folks may have seen, but. Um, The Congress passed and yesterday President Biden signed the infrastructure bill and our coalition, um, Restore the Mississippi River Delta, put out a statement highlighting the amount of investments that are coming um, to Louisiana for coastal restoration, community resilience and other priorities to help protect communities from future storms and sea level rise and really help get a lot of the projects that we advocate for implemented. So this quote is from Kathleen Berthelot, my colleague um, who's a senior policy manager uh, on a climate resilient coasts and watersheds and environmental defense fund. And Kathleen says that coastal restoration and other forms of natural infrastructure are some of the best solutions available to push back against more severe storms and sea levels, sea level rise. At a time when Louisiana is dealing with more FEMA disaster declarations than anywhere in the country, this infrastructure bill was will bring sorely needed investments to better protect communities across our state from increasing climate impacts. Now, Congress must work to also pass the Build Back Better Act to provide even more vital investments to Louisiana's coasts and the communities it supports. So we'll certainly be tracking that and um, hopefully we're providing updates on the investments that are coming in Louisiana and to Louisiana's coast as a result of the infrastructure bill.
1: Good, good voice of the week. So just a reminder, you can add your coastal voice at MississippiRiverDelta.org dash restore dash oh slash sorry that was confusing mississippi dot org slash restore dash the dash coast
0: all right well another great episode thank you to molly and we'll be coming to you soon um with some more good content we've got great episodes and great guests lined up for the rest of the year so stay tuned always you can go online rate subscribe like us share us with your friends we appreciate our listeners and our guests so much
1: maybe a milestone coming up too Jackie. you know
0: don't want to tease too much but yes we're about (laughs) to hit a major milestone on delta dispatches so more to come on that um and really as it's celebration of our guests and our listeners for getting us there but until then we will see y'all later alligators